Welcome back to Owned and Operated, where we dive deep into the businesses we own, the businesses we are acquiring, and we also bring on guests to talk about their operating struggles. If you like what you hear today, follow John and Brandon on Twitter. That's John at Wilson Companies and Brandon at Brandon Niro. Also, check out our weekly newsletter where we teach you how to be an effective operator. You can sign up by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by visiting ownedandoperated.com. That's ownedandoperated.com. Check it out. Okay, today we have Mitchell Baldridge. Mitchell runs Baldridge Financial, an all-in-one tax and financial planning firm for small and mid-sized businesses nationwide. John and Brandon get into the details of Mitchell's business. Specifically, they talk about how much it's grown since Mitchell got active on Twitter and some of the nuances of growing a financial services firm. One of the highlights of this episode is when John and Mitchell break down a deal, where John gives Mitchell an asset-heavy business and asks for some of the best tax strategies he could use and how much they will pay off. Mitchell is really good at making tax advice simple to understand, and listening to this episode, you will learn a bunch of new ways you can save money with your business. Enjoy. If you listen to our show, you know that we can spend months sourcing businesses, talking with them, negotiating LOIs, conducting due diligence, all for a deal to fall through at the finish line. Microacquire solves that whole problem, whether you're buying or selling a business. As a seller, you're getting introduced to over 50,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity. As a buyer, you get to sort through profitable, vetted sellers and close in 30 days. We don't own any digital businesses yet, but over the next year, we're intending to grab a couple, and MicroRecryer is going to be our choice for a sourcing platform. All right, welcome back to Owned and Operated. If you're picking up what we're putting down, check out our website, ownedandoperated.com. Sign up for the newsletter. We've got some really great weekly blogs and articles that are coming out, and we now have a private newsletter, which is really cool, where we're breaking down the financial performance of one of our new acquisitions. So check it out. It's cool. Today with us, we have Mitchell Baldridge. Welcome, Mitchell. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Excited to be on. Yeah, this will be a lot of fun. It took us a couple of weeks to get here because Brandon's and, you know, mm-hmm. like busy or... You're, the big <laughs> septic, you're, you're pumping septic over there? Pumping or what are y'all doing? septic. <laughs> Running on the trucks. Pumping septic. <laughs> yeah. So this took us a couple of shots, but we're excited to be here. Mitchell, how about you give everybody like a 60-second primer on what you do and what you get into every day? Sure. So I am a CPA and a certified financial planner in Houston, Texas. Background was out of college working as in tax at a CPA firm, a, a local kind of private client service, you know, big family firm. Went and worked for BDO, working on, you know, large companies public company, private company, tax provisions, tax returns. And then about seven or eight years ago now, left to go out on my own, you know, built the thing on a card table, have grown. Now there's nine employees kind of growing. We local office in Houston, but clients all over the place. We we primarily serve our clients 
obviously doing bookkeeping, tax returns, and then we do financial planning and general consulting as well. So that's my background. I'm married, have a couple of young kids and, you know, whole life here in Houston as well. How old are the kids? Three and one. So we're on the, we're my on youngest the same just cycle. turned one. You and me are on the same side. All cycle. right. Yeah, my, my daughter Lucy just turned one like a couple weeks ago. All right. Henry's June 19th. Okay. So, Sweet. Yeah, there you go. All right. We're on the same timeline. We're lighting candles the same evenings. All right. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, that was great. I have a couple directions I think I want to I want to take this. One, I want to dive into your practice a little bit. And another one, I always wanted to have you on a pod and like break down a deal tax-wise. Does that sound like fun? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do it. Yeah. So, yeah. Wait, which one do you, you want to do start. first? You're running the show, man. Okay. All right. Brandon's <laughs> running the show. Yeah, let's... Okay, good. so let's run into your current practice right now. So you have a pretty good team and you guys... So seven years ago, you launched and now you have a pretty good sized team. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We've been just kind of steady growing until the big Twitter thing hit. Now I'm busier than I can. (laughs) Now I'm trying to actually scale up and design systems to kind of absorb some of the new work and lead flow and and trying to kind of redesign the business to, to do the stuff that is exactly what we want to do over here. So it's, it's been exciting. Yeah. Does this type of industry work like law where you have partners or sort of like the big dogs that bring in a couple million of business each and then a bunch of associates or analysts do all the small work or it's worked for me that, you know, I was the one and only guy where I was, you know, doing the work, selling the work, managing the client relationships. And as we've grown, I first hired contractors, then hired employees. Now we have, you know, a team of employees, contractors, and, you know, all at really scaling up into systems now to handle the work. But I've been the primary kind of sales engine of the firm, you know, as long as it's been in existence. And, and that's probably one of my key roles today in that I don't do as much work <laughs> any longer like I used to. But And then we're actually right now making a pretty large hire for us, which is hiring another guy at a kind of director rolling into partner level who, who is going to kind of be director of operations, general manager type role to really run the work and and set me out selling more. So right now, like if I was like, Hey man, I need some, stuff. I don't know. So, like you're going to be the person like always to sort of initiate that sales conversation and Hey, you're a $30,000 a year client or. Yeah, generally. So, and actually, you know, I reread, I was on a business trip last week and reread built to sell where he, in that book talks about, you have to have a sales force outside of yourself. And that will be kind of down the line the next role and that people say, well, you don't need to hire salespeople, but hiring salespeople, I think has merits in that you process the work you do enough so that someone else can sell it. And that, 
helps to deliver the work into the, you know, mechanism where you get the work done and it creates consistency across the whole firm that is probably better than me creatively selling something new every time. But yeah, today, like how we're constructed. Yeah. John, you reach out and you say, Hey, heard you on Twitter, heard you on owned and operated, would love to kind of learn more about what you're up to. Generally it begins with a, and that's been kind of our log jam as well as just kind of, mm-hmm. I send you back a questionnaire and I effectively put you on a wait list. <laughs> and then, you know, as I kind of grow it some capacity or if, if it's pretty particularly interesting or particularly a fit of what we do, we'll set up a zoom call. We'll start digging through. What do you need us to do? Do you need bookkeeping? Do you need personal financial planning? Do you need tax work? I mean, a lot of it stems from tax work and then spreads out from there based on kind of, what business people are in and where they are in their lives and what the complexities are. So yeah, that's what we do today. I don't know if this is a direct parallel, but what we see, what you just sort of described all the time in trade companies, where like we'll go into a business and one of the owners is the lead salesperson. So a plumber will go out and he'll find like, a water heater, toilet, or uh, furnace, you know, whatever, that needs replaced for, so they need an estimate, they need like it to go into the sales process. And it goes back to the owner, sort of gets left on their desk, and they sort of get behind. So one of the efficiencies that we usually create is we're able to go in and we decentralize the sales process almost immediately. And at first, most owners look at us like, how on earth could you possibly do that? Because what they do is very complex. What you do is probably like crazy complex, but we usually do it by dramatically simplifying what we sell and then standardizing the pricing across that way. It's standardizing the pricing and the expected output. That way it's like, here's a menu and here's the deliverable that comes with that menu. And then everyone becomes salespeople overnight. Well, that, I mean, Built to sell is just right at the front of my mind because I just reread it, like yeah. I said. But I mean, that's what he ran an agency. And then in that book, his mentor says, what do you do best? And the agency gets collapsed into a logo making business where they were able to put 10 grand on the brochure. And then there is no sales process any longer because it's a product. It's not a service right. any longer. And we sell, we sell this five-step logo making system for 10 grand. And you know, yeah, you just the way that I think in my mind works kind of works against me some ways in that I want to have more and more and more insight into kind of what people are doing and what their businesses look like. Cause it enables me to help them better but then it becomes a three prong business of bookkeeping, tax, financial planning, and all the information has to kind of, it becomes this orchestra (laughs) kind of, of how to flow the information through the office and make sure we're not asking for the same thing three times and then deliver a product where everything converges into really good advice. So, 
when it works, it's awesome. And it, we've made it work and I think it's a good product, but yeah, the, the degree of difficulty is probably higher than it needs to be. And that leaks into the sales process, which then makes me the bottleneck again. So how would you fix my business for me? (laughs) Brandon. Yeah. yeah, We'll, we'll ask Brandon, but before we do that, what I sort of going along with the built to sell, like my dream business is a business that like only installs water heaters. That's it. Tankless water heaters. Yeah. Tankless water heaters are us. Just water heaters. I think that'd be sweet. There's a guy in my area that does just water heaters and he has like eight guys and all they do is water heaters all day. That's it. That's all they know how to do. That's incredible. Like you're not paying full plumber's rate. These guys are expert water heater installers. They each do like eight a day, which is insane. <laughs> they have three SKUs. They're just, right. their warehouse is yeah. just jammed just full of water churning heaters. water heaters every day. Like that's like the <laughs> yep. dream business. I'm like, why are yep. we messing with all these faucets and toilets? Let's just do water heaters just oh, all day. <laughs> like in Texas, I tell, I told the client of mine who's in HVAC, I'm like, you should just put mini splits in people's garages. Oh yeah. Just Mini splits are us. Just That's load mini. Yeah. And then you can find the place next to the garage to set it and mount it. And a lot of times the breaker's in the garage and you're just home free, you we, know, but yeah. This septic company that we just acquired a few weeks ago, I started working on their price book last night. They have 150 items. So for reference, like Wilson has a thousand or, you know, so like 150 was like, oh my God. And that's all they need. That's all they actually use. So I was like, that's great. (laughs) Let's get it down to 10. (laughs) Are you using Service Titan or what are y'all doing? Yeah, we'll be switching over. It takes a few months to transition to Service Titan. Yeah. But But you'll you'll load all that in and be able to just hammer out quotes through there, right? Yeah. That'll be the easiest price book ever. Yeah, it's going to be incredible. Okay, but enough about us. But yeah, we go in and we usually try to simplify because it is like there's always a a bottleneck somewhere. But Mm -hmm. some owners like that for control or for more of a process with the customer so they can establish relationships or because it's super complicated, which yours is super complicated. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that's so back to your question. It does kind of converge onto me to really decide. And what we've tried to do is just sell a premium service and again, try to provide, try to cover clients in service and find clients who can derive value out of that in terms of, you know, they have a complex tax situation or financial situation. A lot of our clients are business owners or general partners or either in real estate or private equity or venture capital, where a lot of them have big businesses and are kind of one man teams with no employees or own a business with a bunch of employees, but not really to the scale of having a finance department or, or their daughter does the bookkeeping, but they want someone at that controller level to oversee the books. And then we can kind of layer on the financial advice of insurance, trust, estate, retirement plans, you know, all of these things that come up, even cash, cash management. And and a lot of 
kind of advice that these people seem to fall through the cracks of the big brokers who really want to either sell them insurance or sell them investment management. And a lot of these people have really illiquid investments or big investments in their businesses or big investments in their real estate holdings. And they're just not an ideal client for one of these salespeople who has a service of, I want to capture a lot of your <laughs> cash because like, there's I, just not that much cash. Style. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you sort of take a, almost a pseudo family office role. Yeah. In, in terms of everything we sell is just our, our time and expertise, whether it be for <laughs> bookkeeping or tax preparation, financial planning, it's all a service. We don't sell insurance products. We aren't asset gatherers. So we really come in and just offer fiduciary advice is how I've tried to kind of structure it. And so, yeah, it really fits for those people who just kind of can't get that advice through walking into a Morgan Stanley office or, you know, Goldman Sachs. So, yeah, I think you and I talked about this on like the pre-call how I just thought that was an awesome service. I know we've started to try to find advisors for our life and it is really difficult because most, you know, financial advisors, it's an asset under management model with a percentage. Sure. And I'm illiquid as hell. <laughs> it's businesses yeah, yeah, yeah. and real estate. Like, and, you know, little, little, little Bitcoin, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's not like, How's that going? Yeah, you know, <laughs> bought at 65, <laughs> sold at 30 right now. Up only. Yeah. Hard spot. So that's an awesome place to fill. It's a real need. Yeah. The drawback in my model is that I'm going to come, you're going to come to me and you're going to say, Hey, I don't have a will and I don't have a, and I need life insurance and I need this trust and I need my property casualty insurance kind of reconfigured. And I'm going to kind of send you back to all those salespeople who will have another kind of layer of commission or fee that if they were advising you as fiduciaries, you would cut some fee because you would have gone straight to them and just gotten good advice. But what you're able to get from me is kind of a overarching plan and a quarterback approach where you would just have another set of ears to kind of lend you feedback into the other salespeople's plan. And then kind of, again, that conflict-free kind of, I have nothing to sell other than (laughs) what I've already sold you. So once we get into that approach, I can go, well, have you thought about doing this disability policy rather than that one or doing this life insurance approach rather than the other one, you know? So Hmm. we have the ability to see the books, see the tax plan, and then kind of request and ask for and analyze all of the backend stuff. When you put it all together, you can really offer or we can really offer advice that just other people aren't in the position to offer because they don't have that kind of expertise coming from all those sides. So it almost kind of reminds me of like, you know, our fractional CFO, but at a, 
essentially an affordable way and and more people involved in it for a smaller size company. Mm -hmm. Like that's way more accessible, I would think, than you know what we do at our size. Yeah, yeah, and just I think more robust. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I think you probably have like a target size business. I know a lot of the companies we buy, they have a company's. I would not say anywhere near as robust as what you guys are. It's typically like a one or two man accounting firm that sort of helps them for the listener. I'm sure. Air quotes <laughs> with their books, but it sounds like you guys take a way more comprehensive approach, but what's the target business size? Really? It depends, you know, on the smaller side, if somebody comes to me and says, Hey, I work for myself and I have several clients in this and I'm doing X and I'm making 50, 60, $80,000 a month and I have no employees. That's a great client. Cause they just go, Hey, just take everything. I don't want to deal with any of this. You do the bookkeeping, you do the taxes, you do the structuring, you do the setup and I'll just forward everything to you. And good luck. Now I don't have <laughs> to hire anybody. Yeah. And, and so they just seem to delegate a lot of the, or even if they have a couple of people working for them, but yeah, again, it, it saves them from hiring a bookkeeper and hiring that kind of office management role if if they don't need that role. And we can just kind of handle all of that. So that that's What's the typical a great cost client for that engagement. What's that? What's like the average order value for that type of engagement? Depending on kind of how much we take on, a thousand dollars up to a few thousand dollars a month for somebody like that. And then there, there's a bigger kind of company, like, uh, you know, one of my older and kind of larger clients or not necessarily in size, but just in terms of they were a very big client early in my business. And as my business has grown, their kind of representation of <laughs> my revenue has shrunk, but like they are like, this was a great setup. They were a, million revenue business who had a someone in this kind of CFO role and they were paying a hundred thousand dollars in benefits. And this was a while ago and vacation and all of that stuff. And this guy left and then that turned into a monthly engagement where we came in for a high fee for us, but less than what he was making and we're able to just kind of capture all that and put somebody in their office doing the day-to-day kind of coding of transactions and check writing and yeah. So you depositing. actually place someone in there. Yeah. Well, that was a family member actually. So one of the people in the business kind of said, listen, I'll sit in the office. I'll run the day-to-day on QuickBooks. I'll post the checks, but we get to come in monthly and reconcile and do the deferreds and do the tax planning and do the, you know, kind of a lot of the high level stuff that adds tremendous value. And it was kind of addition by subtraction situation, even just to have someone sometimes having one less person in your office can be better (laughs) than having one more person in your office. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, those are two examples and, and we have kind of a lot of, different clients in different situations at different price points back to our sales conversation. But, you know, those are 
that's just one on the kind of small side and then one that's a big company and how we can kind of fit in either way, you know? Yeah. How do you typically get clients? Like they just reach out or Twitter has to be a lead source right now. Yeah. Twitter's been ballistic and it's great, but you know, right now, I mean, we're still in, this has been kind of like the tax year that's just gone forever because of coronavirus and they extended and in Texas, we had that freeze and that extended things. And, and so we really haven't, and I'm making a couple of hires out there today. And so we haven't really been aggressively bringing in business just because we're, I'm working out kind of building capacity to just get all of our work done. And, yeah. and so we've made a couple of hires. We have a, a couple more people coming on and I'm going to aggressively start bringing in <laughs> business again. But yeah, I mean, Twitter has been life-changing <laughs> in terms of just, I had no idea how powerful that tool was in terms of creating engagement and just, it's been pretty amazing to go out there and write about kind of how I think and what I do and how I think about money and have people and how I think about money and tax and finances and kind of organizing your life and have people connect with that. And then the people who have connected with me have already opted into the way I think and the way I approach things and, and know a little bit more about my business and how they may fit into it. And it makes, you know, I've been on Twitter actively for probably less than a year and I've just already developed great friends and great clients who I know I'll work with and, and a couple of kind of business partners that I think I'll work with forever. You know, <laughs> So it, it's, it's really cool that way. But so Twitter's been fantastic. But before that, I mean, I had a growing successful business. And again, I've always been just kind of a good communicator in that sense and had a vision for what I want to do. And I've always been just connected. I grew up in Houston. I've lived in Houston my whole life. And I know people who you know live near me or who I've worked with in the past. The day I left my job at BDO, I sent out an email to like 200 people. It was just like, I'm going out on my own. And that sort of led to this, that led to that, that just kind of snowballed. So it's been cool. And then I've seen kind of these evolutions of honing in my vision of how I want to grow my practice. And that has kind of created iterations of, hey, this chunk of clients no longer fits. We either need to raise their price or refer them out or, you know, they need to find somewhere else to go. But I mean, that's okay too. You know? So that's great. Yeah. Not everyone has to go out and do their own thing in life, you know, but it's been really, really a great thing for me in my life. <laughs> I'll tell you that, you know? Yeah. I know I've loved all the stuff that you've put out. I mean, you're just clearly extremely intelligent and you're able to write in such a way that like, I don't feel stupid reading it, which is great. That's always the best. <laughs> it's like, Oh, I get it. <laughs> I was telling somebody the other day about like what it looks like who, 
a client and friend of mine, I met his mom the other day and he was like, Mitchell has, you know, blah, blah, blah followers on Twitter. And she was just very curious about what that looked like. And I was describing the process. And I mean, the first thing I ever did was talk about how if you take your business and you take real estate and you can offset them, you can generate a bunch of cash flow out of your business and run a bunch of depreciation through your business and not pay tax on your business's cash flow. And like that idea, I kind of always knew that, but I just kind of, I try to just take it really simple and linear and just go step by step by step. And then I kind of rewrite it. And then, you know, I want to do more of it, but again, I'm just kind of covered up and I almost am like trying to slow, <laughs> slow it down a little bit, but they're fun to write and they're really valuable. I've had a couple of people I respect a lot say, Hey, you know, like that thing you do, you should do like a hundred times that because it's, it really has been life changing in that people don't really try to put their thoughts out there in that way. And I just try to give away as much value as I can. And there's really no secrets for me. There's no secret sauce that Mm -hmm. people aren't going to take, steal my ideas and do their own accounting. (laughs) You know, whatever, (laughs) no one wants to. So, you know, you can give it all away and people are still going to call you and want you to do the work. So that's what I've learned. Yeah. I, I think I agree with that. Do you want to break down a deal? Yeah, let's do it. Before we yeah. break down a deal, the whole cap gains tax thing for next yeah. year, is that like a thing? Do we know if it's a thing yet? I did like a doom tweet. You uh, did. One it, of my it last was a big good tweet. tweet. Threads that was like a good the, one. The Biden doom scroll tweet. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. Nobody really knows. Like I was talking to a guy earlier this week who's selling his business for, you know, nine figures and, you know, is trying to jam it through as quick as he can to avoid, they keep saying in August or September. And I've learned a lot about that, but I still don't quite understand. Like they're going to pass all this through budget reconciliation, which that's how they're going to get it through without really having, you know, Mm -hmm. 60 votes in the Senate because they can just kind of do it with a majority. But even then the majority isn't totally clear and there's just going to be a lot of horse trading. I think what's out there is kind of the worst case as an anchor to try to scare people and set people into knowing that taxes are going to go up, but they're not going to go up that much. I mean, ultimately you have people arguing that taxes should be 35% and other people arguing that they should be 41%. So like, that's the, I mean, obviously cap gains going from 20 to 41% is more than that, but it's all kind of in the margins anyway. I think they want opportunity zones to be the new kind of tax deferral vehicle because it's, it's much shorter than like a 1031. I think a lot of people will start using C-Corps and QSBS to... Well, let's, let's break this down a little bit further for the, sure. for the average non-tax sure. yeah, yeah. person. So right now, if I went and sold a business or a property, I guess I don't know if stocks count for this. 
specific thing. But but you have an opportunity. You can invest into a qualified opportunity zone fund, which allows you to, if you hold an investment there for seven years, you don't have to pay. You only have to pay a section of it. And if you hold it for 10, you don't have to pay any. Is that the general idea? I wrote a long tweet about qualified opportunity funds. So the qualified opportunity fund is the vehicle inside of a qualified opportunity zone, which are the, there are, there's a map. If you search QOZ map, you'll find it. And basically I think governors were allowed to decide which sections of their states were these economic development zones. Like previously underinvested zones is I think the idea. Yeah. Like they're, they're trying to take what would have been like, you can shelter your tax dollars by shoving it into an underinvested zone. Yes. And so then you can take any capital gain of any sort, short-term, long-term, or otherwise, and defer it into one of these qualified opportunity funds. And it could be a syndicated fund, or you can create your own fund just by creating a partnership and buying an asset. And these funds can buy assets in terms of real estate, but there's rules that you have to basically invest in the real estate. You can't buy a rent house and just start cash flowing it. You have to, I believe, put, don't quote me on this, but 50% improvement into the... So raw land's a perfect deal because there's no improvement. It's just land. So you go put a trailer on it and you're, you're basically qualified. But you know, if you buy a house, you have to go in and gut renovate that house and rebuild it because that's the objective of the whole movement is to get dollars into improving these underinvested areas. So you take your capital gain and rather than paying tax on it, you invest it and you don't have to pay your tax until 2026. So you pay nothing until 2026. And then you only have to redeploy your gain you can pull your principal out. So it's not like a 1031 where you have to reinvest your principal and reinvest your debt and, you know, basically buy a property that was more expensive than the property you sold. In this example, if you had a million dollars of Apple stock that you sold for $5 million, you'd have a $4 million gain. And really you'd only have to reinvest that $4 million. And then you can go buy a $1 million piece of land, build a $3 million building, and you're good to go. So in 2026, you're going to go have to pay your tax on that. And you're going to be able to pay 90% of the tax that you were going to pay originally. It was up to, it was 85%, but that ended last year in a, or that ended in 2019 or, and then I think the 10% ends this year. So I think you have to go and do this this year, but if you do it next year, you would just pay a hundred percent of the tax you were going to owe, but in 2026. And so again, you have to take that million dollars in this example, your principal and set it aside because you're going to owe taxes on the 4 million, <laughs> you know? And so then 
yeah, you, you invest, you buy the land, you build the building, it's cash flowing, it's running awesome. You get to take that depreciation in that investment and deduct it, but you have to pay income as the thing goes along on the cash flow, on the profit, on the, on the net income. Now, if you hold that for 10 years, when you go to sell it, you don't have to pay capital gains on the appreciation. So if it went from $4 million to $15 million in 10 years, you get tax-free appreciation. You get to sell it, put the money in your pocket, run down the road. So that's the that's QOZ in a nutshell. Do you think they're going to... I guess I've always wondered, is it working? I don't know. The issue is also like, I think Montana... For example, they said that like one of the nicest areas of Montana is in an opportunity zone. Nice. Like this area in Houston, Midtown is in an opportunity zone, which Midtown 20 years ago was an opportunity zone. Not really today, you know? I mean, that's, and so the question is apples to apples. Every opportunity zone is not the same. The other issue is you're, you're only deferring for a few years. So you're not really, this isn't the 1031. While you can still do 1031s, it's probably a better deal. But, you know, you can do an opportunity, you can defer stock capital gains into an opportunity zone where you can only do real property and mineral property into 1031s today. So it makes sense kind of, given like the kind of way that corporate governance is going and taxes are going and the kind of ethos of where government's going, that they want to push money into lower developed areas. This is a great way to do it. You know, if you had an awesome deal under contract and it was in an opportunity zone and you go, Oh great. I get, I have all these, capital gains sitting there like, yeah, I do it because deferring capital gains is great. And that opportunity to hold that investment for 10 years and not pay tax on the other end is great. But I don't know if it's working or not. I, I mean, I see people doing them, but you know, we haven't seen, <laughs> you know, we don't know the future and we haven't seen the whole thing yeah. play out. I mean, it's great because everyone, We'll see in 2026 when the tax bill comes due, how, how it's going. Oh, and, then, and then we'll see in 10 years, you know? Yeah. We have some opportunity zones in our city and it has, they were well-placed, like previously underinvested, and it would be really cool if it worked, but so far they're still underinvested. There's been some development, but not, not real property. What some people are doing though Apparently, there's a very liberal use of these funds where yeah. you can, like, if you you can launch a business mm-hmm. with a qualified opportunity zone fund, which I think is really kind of cool, which makes it like way more flexible than the 1031. Like, you can use it to create a business or go buy a business inside one of these funds. Sure. So you can go rent a warehouse in a section of Akron, or go buy a warehouse in a section of Akron, and then go fill it up. And yeah, you can go seed your business and defer tax in seeding your business. Yeah, the big issue is like 
that tax bill is coming due in three years and you have to have that money waiting (laughs) or, you know, in four or five years, you have to have that money waiting, ready to, ready to go. But yeah, it is a, yeah. If if people use it, how it can be used and it pushes development, it's great. You know? Yeah. Huh. Okay. So that was good. Let's dive into a deal. Let's do this thing. Okay. What size deal do you want to tackle? What's a typical deal that you'd see? It has to be business. Can't be real property. Let's do a $10 million business deal. Let's do this thing. I'll lay the land. You ready? Please. Close your eyes. Kick your feet up. John's going to tell (laughs) you a story. (laughs) All right. A generation ago, (laughs) someone started a business. So, you know, we've got 30 to 40 years of operating history. What do we want to do? Do you want to do asset heavy or light? Heavy. Okay. We might have to do a light then too because it you know, changes, the, changes the scope. Okay. Let's make it a C-Corp just for fun. So we've got an asset heavy C-Corp manufacturing and they own the real property and obviously they own some of the equipment and then they lease some of the equipment. So let's say they've got a $5 million basis on equipment with, I don't know, what, two and a half a book? So their assets have been depreciated by two and a half million. How long is manufacturing equipment depreciated? That's a half life, right? It's bonus. It's five year, or it depends if it's bolted down to the okay. foundation, like, essentially. Can you or, is, like, is that the idea? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go buy, like I have these clients in a kind of manufacturing operation related to lumber, let's say, and yeah. they bonus the whole thing. And, okay. you know, so. Even asset heavy, the only asset heavy component of a business like that would be the warehouse. You know, that's 39 year. You know, you said this business started 40 years ago. Let's say they bought the warehouse 20 years ago and and they're still riding, you know, but even asset heavy businesses can have high book value, but not have much tax life yet because everyone's just ramming it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Everyone's trying to beat up their assets as as quickly and as hard as they can given the current world. Yeah. Okay. So let's, so let's continue this. So it was a 10 million enterprise value. They've got 5 million basis, two and a half million in book value. And let's say a million dollars of land on top of that. Should we go into debt? Let's say they're debt free just to make it easy because that's kind of irrelevant. I'm trying to think what else would be interesting here. I don't know. Is that enough? Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of things to think about here, which is like you say C-Corp, does QSBS come into play? Were they original issuing shares more than five years ago? Are they selling the shares or are they selling the assets? Which do you see more of at 10 million enterprise? Do you start to see a lot more stock sales? At our end of the market, which is like sub 3 million enterprise, it's they're all asset sales still. The C-Corp brings in that double tax issue. Yeah, the higher you go, the more comfortable people are buying C-Corp because they just... It's almost too complex. My theory is that it gets into private equity or it gets into kind of a larger pool of money and they want the C-Corp vehicle because they don't want to pass through the losses and have to write down the investment if they leave the shares on their books 
at purchase price. And then maybe they, you know, they can do some goodwill amortization and not get killed or it's asset heavy anyway. And they're about to invest a bunch more money into it. So they know it's not going to kick off a tax burden in the next few years. They know, Hey, we can put this 10 million on our books and we aren't going to have the pass through of, you know, seeing the performance and getting the K one with the capital account at the bottom of it and having to write down our investment every year as it bleeds cash or (laughs) bleeds, you know, losses. But maybe someone else would know someone from the private equity side would, would know more about that, but that's always just kind of been my theory. But so, I mean, the owner is incentivized to sell the stock because the owner will get capital gains treatment if he can sell the shares. I mean, the owner wants to sell the cash inside the business, you know, so the owner will want to sell the business performance at the multiple sell the cash at one X and just deliver the business inside of the C Corp capsule so that they can sell the shares just like they were selling IBM stock, you know, cause they don't, then they just recognize the 20% capital gains tax. But because otherwise if they have to collapse that business, either they have to do, and this is out there and you're seeing it so much more now, F reorgs. Have you been hearing about this where basically people are trying to take their S corps or C corps and convert them to partnerships and not suffer the tax consequences. And I'm not by any means an expert on that kind of transaction, but I probably should be as more and more of these (laughs) continue to go on. But basically, the owner's incentivized to sell the stock because the owner wants just clean capital gains. If the owner sells the assets, you actually get into this kind of step transaction where you have to liquidate the C-Corp, distribute all the assets, recognize, step up, you know, a built-in gain in the land. If the land was sitting in the C-Corp, it becomes this whole deal where you may have to recognize a gain and then you may have to push the assets out and recognize a dividend and then go sell the assets. And then the buyer on the other side knows, Hey, if the seller doesn't do that, then we're going to have to do that. So traditionally C corps, they can be great to operate in for a number of reasons, but they've been harder to sell. You know, have you ever done, we have a C corp that we're working on for this year and we're using something called personal goodwill. Mm -hmm. So we're buying the assets. It's, it's a, not a tax-free transaction, but it is an asset purchase. So we're buying the assets at book. So there's no step up and yep. then, or sorry, catch up. There's no catch up. And then we're buying the remainder as personal goodwill from the seller himself. Yeah. We, we did that once to effectively convert a client's escort to a partnership so that he could sell. We used personal goodwill. And that's basically the argument. I mean, I could, I run a very asset light business. And if I were, and I am an escort and if someone, I would realistically just sell my book of business as goodwill, but you know, people, they don't want to sell the, 
or a lot of times people don't want to buy the assets because they want to hold the contracts. They want to keep the EIN number of the business. They want to keep a lot of the things in place that are goodwill characteristics of the business so that they can have a continuity of operations either like in healthcare that's big or in businesses that provide services to big companies or governments or, or, you know, you you don't want to go through all the red tape of being reauthorized as a vendor. So yeah, you go, well, I want to buy the business. And even though it wouldn't be a big deal for me to sell my S corp, the company that's going to buy my S corp may bust the S election because S corps can only be owned by individuals and certain trusts, you know? And so, yeah, a company couldn't buy my S corp without, Busting the election, converting it into a C corp, and then having to liquidate it into a partnership. So yeah, that's where personal goodwill comes in. And that arguably I've created the value of my business lies in contracts and relationships with my clients. And I created all that myself personally. So they, they allow you and again, I've dealt with this only a couple of times and, and not in a while, but the IRS kind of allows you to finagle it a bit by pushing out the personal goodwill and not having to pay a dividend on that. All this leads into like when you're getting into one of these, the problem is small transactions can be pretty complicated. I mean, we're talking about you know a 2 or $3 million transaction in your example or a $10 million transaction. Those are big, but they, they're they not that big. But you, you can come across big issues that need to be handled properly. <laughs> you know, that's where the lawyers, accountants, and, you know, the lawyers, accountants, brokers, everyone kind of keeping that transaction running. They need to know what's going on and you need to get the best advice you can. You know? Yeah. I think most of our listeners are, listeners are people either buying businesses or looking to buy businesses, how do you feel like, what do you feel like people should be looking out for from your perspective for that transaction to happen? The things I look at are like, I had a client looking to do a LOI on a business that was an asset acquisition. That was a tuck in that I think the opportunity exists in these small businesses that are kind of run by less than organized people, (laughs) you know, I mean, a lot of these people have good businesses that just print cash, but have really, really bad books. And so a, a lot of it becomes, you either have to buy businesses from people that are totally buttoned up, that have really gotten their stuff together over the last three years that have been audited, that are totally organized and you pay a premium for that or you get into these junk businesses and then you have to find creative structures that work that limit your downside risk. So, I mean, and the market seems to be so hot right now that you can't, that sellers still have leverage even when their business is junk. So you either have to decide, am I going to pay more and just buy a good business or is the risk of 
what could go wrong worth it and the kind of headache that's going to come out of having to run due diligence on this business that's a mess all worth it is the premium there and you also have to just know yourself like is that just going to drive you crazy or do you have enough flexibility to kind of rebuild that business in your mind and get comfortable with it so for a business like that what i first would say give me the books give me the taxes do those match so if those don't match, then I'm, you know, then you're going well. <laughs> let's let's really try to. And oftentimes they don't match because these people are just using this business as their piggy bank, or they're lying on their taxes. And if they're lying on their taxes, you probably don't want to buy their business. You probably would want to buy their assets, just buy their customer list. I see a lot of cash versus accrual differences. Yeah, like the books are in accrual, the tax returns are in cash. I mean, that can make a sure. pretty, the transaction we just closed, the difference was like 30% of income. It was pretty significant just because they had a ton of receivables. Yeah. And then, all right. So when you go buy that business, are you going to buy the receivables or are they going to buy the receivables? Who's going to pay the, when the receivables hit, are you going to pay the tax? Or are they going to pay the tax? Yeah, really. Those are the kind of questions that are, if they're deferring revenue because they're on a subscription model or, or they're on some kind of ongoing fee, you know, also just, yeah, you see people, you see the seller ad back thing where they go, well, my grandma and my grandkid and my neighbor all have gas cards and that's all going away. And I'm paying these 20 people that you don't need to pay once you take it over. I mean, that's a huge deal of if you can find a business without ad backs, then that's fantastic. But digging into those ad backs and why they exist, obviously that's a huge piece. And then really it becomes trying to do a quality of earnings, you know, either go hire an accountant to do quality of earnings or try to do it yourself, but really try to account for when money is deposited into that company where is it coming from? Is it revenue? Is it not revenue? And yeah. And when money leaves the company, why is it leaving the company? Is it an expense? Is it the owners taking money out to spend however they please? Or is the owner taking cash out to pay people cash that are integral parts of the business? I mean, that's where these things can Again, none of them are deal breakers. You just have to know. That's where even the timeline of closing a business can play in your favor because you can start to, through the LOI, into the PSA, into the closing, get a view into the day-to-day operations of the business. I mean, you may even want to say, hey, to the owner, I want to see weekly sales reports, weekly cash collections reports, weekly distributions. I want to see how the payroll gets made. I mean, I know there are issues in them wanting you to meet their staff and alert their staff and a lot of that. But I mean, the closer you can get in buying a small business to the day-to-day of how cash moves in and out of the business, you'll start to really see what's going on. Even at looking at 
a monthly cash flow statement can be really helpful because you'll, like you said, the difference between cash and accrual accounting is one difference, but the difference between cash and accrual versus just the cash flow statement, that's even another difference. And that's the, you know, the main thing to look at is how is cash entering the business? How is cash leaving the business? And while it's in the business, what's it doing? You know, Mm -hmm. it's interesting how the process changes for our size deals. Typically it's hard to do like a full fledged quality of earnings because the transaction size can't merit the expense. Sure. So you have to sort of, you know, (laughs) figure it out, (laughs) figure it out and pray. But we've started getting as close as we possibly can. Not on the cash side, though. That That is an, I don't think we've done that. We've done it on the sales side, on the op side, like call taking, all that stuff, but not quite on the cash flow. That's good input. I'm going to. Well, I mean, right you're going to ultimately take over the accounting for that business. Mm-hmm. So why not take it over the day the LOI signed or just say, hey, I'm going to. I mean, if you have bookkeepers sitting in your business and a whole finance department operating in your business, why not get a head start and go, hey, we're going to take your QuickBooks and clone it and connect the bank feeds. And you're going to send me the, you're going to get me my own login, read only access to your bank account. And I'm going to run your accounting in parallel for the next month while we're hashing through this. I I mean, I wish we would have had you as a guest like about a month ago. (laughs) (laughs) the past two weeks has been like purely just on the finance side has been crazy you had the chance remember we we had the chance i know we had the chance and now i'm I'm thinking about the next one because i'm like okay i'm I'm about to do this but yeah the first couple weeks were were tough i actually didn't get sales data sales data like you know pretty important stuff i had sales data pre-close so i was getting weekly and sometimes daily sales data reports but I didn't have sales data post-close for about 11 or 12 days because of the, there was a delay in hooking up to our finance system. Sure. So like, you know, who knows how we're doing, (laughs) but I'm still cutting payroll. (laughs) It's probably fine. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry about it. (laughs) What could go wrong? Yeah. What could go wrong? No, I mean, you know, you're about to spend millions of dollars buying this business for you to not, spend oh yeah you know five ten twenty grand whatever it really scrubbing through the numbers it's just you have to do it it's just a cost of doing it and yeah once you have the LOI signed and, and once you're really moving along yeah to go try to I mean get access get some kind of read-only access to their QuickBooks or like I said clone their QuickBooks and rebuild their QuickBooks on your financial system before you close, I mean, that really sets you up day one to be, I mean, you're, you're working in parallel for the meanwhile, but you're going to have to figure it out after you close. So you might as well figure it out before you close. So, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of what I think of. I always say begin with the end of mind, just in terms of when you're going out to do anything like this. And yeah, when you're going out to make a big investment, you're going to wind up doing all this work anyway, you might as well do it three or four weeks earlier and, you know, maybe find something that you never wanted to find and lose your earnest money and call it off or whatever that looks like, you know, it'd be money well spent. I'm into this. 
<laughs> so that I mean, Rand, that's just put this in our playbook for the next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Rand. <laughs> so I think really in buying businesses, it's just it's important to understand what's happening, and a lot of times these people are your. They're not always going to be fully transparent in the worst parts of their business. And and so it's up to you to find it out and price it accordingly. Mm -hmm. I'm not envious of people in this market trying to buy anything because it seems like everyone's lining up to buy and the sellers have a lot of leverage, whether it's businesses or assets. But at the same time, there's a million businesses out there, (laughs) you know, owned by 65 year olds who are just tired of working that are ready to sell. I mean, I think the better you can, the best thing you can do is kind of, you know, find a business any way you can. I've bought one business in my life, which is I bought a book of bookkeeping from another accountant and he was tired of doing it and his bookkeeper quit and he was just kind of jammed up and and it worked out perfectly. And he had given me, a lot of business already and bookkeeping tends to trade at like one X revenue. And so I said, Hey, I'm going to pay you a quarter of revenue for the next five years, 1.25 X. And I'm just going to cut you checks quarterly as the money comes in. And that de-risked the whole thing for me, you know? And I guess if he had gone out to market, maybe he could have gotten more or he could have gotten a bigger check up front, but he didn't need the money. He wanted his clients to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be rid of it. I offered him a solution and he wanted to get something for it. He had built he yep. had built it, but it was no risk to me. It was no out of pocket. I didn't have to do an SBA loan. I was able to owner finance out of the revenue of the business on a handshake, <laughs> the business. So that you know, that's the only deal I've done and it's worked out for me, but well, I, I, it, it, I mean, I think you just described like the perfect, the perfect deal deal structure. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, not even, I mean, yeah, the structure was cool, but also the dynamics, like when you have a buyer and a seller yeah. that are aligned and you both just want to get a deal done and a fair deal done and you can both work in tandem on that, then that's a beautiful thing we do our best to help sellers sort of design their exit. So what do you want your life to look like in a year or two? How can I help you get there? And then the real magic happens when the seller turns right back around and says, okay, yeah, absolutely. This sounds great, but how can I help you achieve whatever you're trying to achieve? And how can I be a part of that? And it's awesome. I mean, (laughs) yeah, hearing you and you're in Rick's podcast was, there was a lot of that where he's still working with the guy who sold them. And yeah, Rick's a great guy. And that, turned out to seems like be a great transaction. Yeah, it seems like it's but a good fit. Yeah. When you can call the guy three years later, either cause he's the head of, cause he's the president of your company or because he'll still take your phone calls or, and get, use that person as a resource. It's so much better than this adversarial. Yeah. This goes in all ways, but life's too short to deal with psychopaths and it, like you cannot go buy a business from a psychopath. It's not going to work. And, so, and you can't be a psychopath and, buyer. I mean, I think, I think it's a two way street. Yeah. So we can afford to be choosy, which sounds ridiculous yeah. in this current market, but we're a buyer of choice. We have businesses approach us all the time and we have a lot of deal flow. So we can, 
we can say no. And I do often. Mainly if it looks like the seller is going to be an extremely transactional seller, like I can already tell you I'm not the right buyer for you because my process is completely based on us becoming friends for a long time. (laughs) So like, it's just not going to be a fit (laughs) and that's okay. Like I'm sure that somebody out there will match that temperament, but for me, I'm going to go in and we're going to hang out every week over lunch for like six months. And then at the end of that, I'll buy your business and you'll probably work for me for a little bit and we'll be good. And that's our process. (laughs) Like in a nutshell. Yeah. And then that's a matter of, Again, there's so many people out there who haven't listed their business, who feel like their business is worthless, who just don't know how to get out of it. So if you go find men and women in their 60s who are still working and don't have an heir apparent, and as a, I mean, we're both young guys, as a young person, go ask them for help, ask them if you can buy parts of their business or man, if you just, I'm an accountant, but if you just started picking up the phone and calling solo accountants and saying, this is who I am. This is what my business looks like. Are you still taking on new clients? They will all say, no, we're not taking new clients. And then if you said, when good clients who match this profile are referred to you, will you refer them to me? And I'll, give you a commission or I won't give you a commission. Like so many people would do that in this, you could build an accounting practice so easily off of that playbook. And then as you serve those people, well, who they refer to you when they go, you'll be their first call when they go to hang it up. I mean, you know, I've had that with another lady, my friend's mom sent me, one of my biggest clients. And she said, Hey, I'm not selling this to you. I'm giving this to you. These are good clients. I just don't have the time. I'm retired. I have these health issues. Take care of them. Don't mess it up. You know, and there's a lot of work out there, you know, in a bigger company with assets and with all of this, people aren't as excited to just hand it over. But also people suddenly hit the point in their life where they go, oh, I can't do this because of a health issue or a life issue or just capacity or just I'm too tired. And then they realize very quickly they have not built a succession plan (laughs) and they don't have the people in place who are equipped to take on the business either financially or otherwise. And they either shut their business down for nothing or they go to sell it or, you know, there's just a lot of value lost. And so, yeah, I think as a searcher, people are probably, if you're just kind of reading sims of what's on the market, it's kind of like the MLS or the, you know, people say, well, you can find deals on the MLS, but they're just, some of the best deals aren't listed and will never be listed. And we'll just trade privately because People don't want to deal with the process of selling their business. It's a pain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're five so, years in and seven by the end of the year. And we've never bought one off market. Like, sorry, on market. They're all yeah, yeah, yeah. seller direct deals always. I mean, there's a lot more price discovery on both sides without the market in the sense that the seller knows what they want to get for their business. You know what you want to pay. And mm-hmm. And the seller is going to take 
less generally by not doing all the work to build and market their business for three or four years. And you're going to capture value and it's easier. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's easier. We've tried to do deals with brokers and I know that their job is to make it easier by like packaging it all together and I don't know, doing air quotes, all the work. But again, it becomes this transactional thing that just doesn't fit with how I do things. It's probably just me. It's probably a me problem. But when I can work directly with a seller, it's like magical. It just, it flows. And it's probably because I'm not very sophisticated. Like I'm a casual, like I'm not PE or, you know, something like that. I'm just like a dude who happens to buy these things. And I used to like turn the wrenches myself. So, but yeah, I think that whole like, Going direct to seller is the way. Uh, it's just the way. It's the way. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so again, then you're looking at, then if you've met that person for lunch for six months and you know them a little bit more, then a lot of the due diligence is not going to be because they're trying to defraud you. It's because they are maybe not as sophisticated or not as organized or have just been running a simple business out of their bank account for the last 20 years. And really most of their bookkeeping work is just to pay their taxes. And, you know, that's it. And going back to, I mean, a lot of these people on Twitter who buy businesses with a lot who have, those are the same businesses who have the fax machine and haven't raised their prices in 10 years. And, you know, just cause they own their real estate, they have, a stable labor force and they just, they're probably a little sleepy. They're just making too much money and, (laughs) you know, haven't really needed to make a change until again, suddenly they do. So I think, again, I don't go out and look to buy businesses. So I don't know the the best way out there. (laughs) You just sell your services to the the morons like me. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. You know, that I just know kind of what I would do if, if I were trying to get the best deal on a business and that, that's the route I would go. It is a little bit slower of a route and a little bit more, I mean, you have to build that network and you have to become that buyer of choice. But that's why, yeah, you see that like in a high rise, that one guy is the guy who just buys everyone out of all of their high rises. And so when people want to go sell their high rise, they just call that guy, you know, or in any kind of, you know, once you become a known buyer who's has a reputation of being easy to deal with, you'll have your pick of the litter. You know? mm-hmm. Man, this was good. This was good. I feel like we got to close this thing down, but all right, I'm sold. I'm ready to work <laughs> with Boulderish Financial. I'll sign you up. Good. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Okay, if people want to connect with you, where can they find you? Probably Twitter's the best place at Baldridge CPA. And again, I have a thread of threads up there that you can read through a lot of my thoughts. That's that's probably my largest body of work. And then I'm, I have a mailing list that I keep meaning to email people a lot more often. And then, yeah, I'm working on a couple of things that will be released later in the year that I'll talk to you all more about. But yeah, best place to find me is on Twitter and, you know, DM me and go from there. Awesome. All right. This was awesome. I'm looking forward to listening back through this and just like taking notes. It's one of the hardest things about being the host 
is you have to like keep the conversation. You can't like sit there and just digest everything because you have to, because <laughs> you have to like respond, but this was awesome. And like, I'm super into tax, so that probably helps, but yeah, this yeah. is awesome. I've thought about doing a podcast and I feel like I'd just be, I don't know that I can, can do the hosting thing. I don't know that I could get that in the zone. Cause I, I just, I'm better like you see, just wind me up and let me talk and I'll, <laughs> I'll just give you 10 minutes about anything. But no, it's a fun, I've had a fun experience every time I've done it. And yeah, this was great. I mean, I appreciate y'all having me and you can edit it to make me sound smart and loquacious. That'd be great. Rand, so. Rand if you could edit it. To- <laughs> Rand, Rand will, you, will you help me out? Thanks, buddy. All right. All right, thanks for coming on. Uh, thank you all. And to the listener, if you're picking up what we're putting down, check out ownedandoperated.com. Sign up for our newsletters and follow us on Twitter at Wilson Companies and at Brandon Niro. Thanks. <laughs>